Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 132. This episode is sponsored by the fine folks at Lee's Comics. From high atop the stately Lee's Comics mansion, we bring you the Lee's Comics Radio Hour with tonight's special guests, Spider-Man, Superman, Batman, Cerebus the Aardvark, and yours truly, Wally Fields. Friends, have you tried Lee's Comics? Lee's Comics is better than the leading comic book store. Wait a minute. Lee's Comics is the leading comic book store, based on arbitrary standards set by Lee Hester himself. Lee's Comics eBay store is still going strong with over 10,000 vintage comics, the majority of which are now on sale. For half off, choose from Lee's huge stock of golden, silver, bronze, and modern age comics, and specializing in Silver Age Marvel titles. You can count on friendly service, accurate grading, and quick, secure shipping backed by a money-back guarantee. To check out Lee's eBay store, go to eBay. Click Advanced Search to the left of the search bar. Scroll down to Sellers and enter Lee's Comics, Inc., period. That's L-E-E-S-C-O-M-I-C-S-I-N-C, period. Don't forget the period. Lee's Comics is shipping daily with no delays. New items daily. Mention the Fun Ideas podcast and get a free bonus gift. Dennis the Menace, originally a comic trick panel introduced in 1951, expanded into a comic book series, an American television series starring Jay North, an animated television series, and subsequent television series, books, and feature films. There's even a chapter on the British version of Dennis the Menace and Dennis' longtime association with Derek Green and his playground. Pocket Full of Dennis the Minutes by Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions explores the entire history of Dennis the Minutes and is available now on Amazon and Fair Manor Media in hardcover, paperback, and ebook versions. Order your copies today. Hey Michael, it says here we've written another book about the monkeys. Wasn't the first one enough? Not at all, Mark. Our original book, Looking for the Good Times, examining the monkey songs one by one, was very successful, but only covered half the story. Which half? The group half. Our new book, Headquartered, a timeline of the monkey's solo years, covers the solo half. Who knew the monkeys record so many solo albums? Not only that, but this book covers all of their solo projects, including stage shows, horse racing, running record labels, directing and starring in TV shows and movies, voice acting, and jail. Jail? Did the monkeys go to jail? Ah, you have to read the book to find out. You sold me. Have you sold them? Who, who, who's them? 
those people out there listening to this. Well, listen to this! This book has discographies, photos, and other information about the Prefab Four, Mickey, Davy, Peter, and Mike, the Solo Monkeys, plus another nifty cover by Scott Shaw. Wow, he did our last cover, and this one's equally good. Where can you get this masterpiece? Announcer. Announcer? That's me. <coughs> get Headquartered, a timeline of the Monkey Solo Years, written by Michael A. Ventrella and Mark Arnold. Those two guys. It's available in hardback, paperback, or ebook from BearManorMedia.com or from Amazon. Get your copies today. Cool. I'm going to get one today. I've turned in the final edits for the TTV scrapbook, and it should be released sometime this fall from Bear Manor. I'm also currently working on my Mad and Turtles books, an article about Dino Writers and Popeye for Back Issue magazine, and more funny stuff for Andrew Goldfarb's Freaky Magazine. No news yet on my other books. On today's show, we feature the top 25 singles that made the Billboard charts for the Monkees with Michael A. Ventrella. But first, we have the first half of my interview with bassist, pianist, and guitarist, who also plays clarinet and has an extensive musical knowledge. Here he is, Charles DeCosa. Hi, this is Mark Arnold with yet another Fun Ideas podcast, and today I have a very special guest. I have Charlie DeCosa. And here he is. Hey, everybody. Hey, how are you doing today? Hello, world. <laughs> I'm doing well, Mark. How are you? Thank you so much for having me on your show. Sure. Well, like I usually used to do on this podcast, I basically like the guest to introduce himself and just kind of... Tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in music and anything else you're interested in. Uh, well, my name is Charles DeCosa, and uh, and I've been playing music uh, since I've been about 14 years old. Uh, was when I started doing my first gigs. So, the places that people would know me fr from, I was uh, the Paul in Beetlebeat, which is a Florida-based Beatles tribute band, um, and it was a spinoff, one of the spinoff bands from the Epcot's British Invasion band. Um, Jimmy Pappas, who was uh, a longtime member of the British Invasion, spun off his own group called Beetlebeat, and I started playing with them shortly after. As the drummer, I started in the in the uh, drum seat, and then I did the John Spot a few times. I did the George spot once, and then the funny thing is, is I'm I'm a bass player, so mm -hmm. I ended up doing the Paul spot, and then after kind of immersing myself in it, eventually went from right-handed to left-handed, mm -hmm. um, inspired by Artie Saroff and and Jim Miller and a bunch of those guys who've done that, um, Joe Biardi from uh, from Texas. Uh, also, I played bass for. A lot of the bands on the uh, what they call the sunburn circuit the tropical rock bands so because I live in Florida I ended up with a group that played a lot of Jimmy Buffett music and that led to other musicians who played a lot of Jimmy Buffett music and it led to me playing down in Key West a number of times and eventually actually playing with a bunch of the guys in Jimmy's band a bunch of the coral reefers uh, who are great guys and great musicians and boy had a lot of fun playing with those guys and just around the Orlando area. So if you know me as a musician, that's what you know me from. And if you don't know me as a musician, you know me as my kid's dad because I'm at soccer 
constantly with them and <laughs> I've had to give up music to to drive my kids around and, and play soccer lately but uh, it's it's wonderful everything's good now did you grow up in Florida or you just ended up I did I was born on Long Island and oh. uh, I lived there till we were six till I was six not we were six I was six <laughs> and then we uh, moved down to Vero Beach Florida Okay. And I grew up there, and that's where I met my wife, and and uh, we moved from there to Orlando to go to school, and then after we graduated college, we moved up to North Carolina for a year, and it snowed, and we moved back to Florida within a year. Yep. Afraid of snow, eh? That, that's it. No way. Not not my thing. We get a little snow here. It's it's kind of sporadic now in Oregon because it used to be like every year now it's like I guess because of global warming or whatever um it's like every three years now we'll get a good snow otherwise it rains a lot you know well it's I'm glad you got positive effects from global warming it sounds <laughs> <laughs> it's less snowier less cold. um now on your touring or excuse me on your music career I mean do you just play Florida or have you played all over the place well, I, I've, I've played all over. Um, I was never with a, what you'd call a tour, like a bus touring group. Yeah. Um, when I, when I was 19, I got hooked up with a band called the Land Sharks, which was based out of Vero Beach, but they were a, um, they were a group that played everywhere. And my first gig with them when I was 19, we flew out to Paradise Island in the Bahamas and I was a 19-year-old kid playing playing music in the Bahamas. It was it was great, um, and we played all the parks and hotels, and we traveled with that group. And then I hooked up with a group called uh, Jim Morris and the Big Bamboo Band. Years later, <laughs> and Jim was a singer-songwriter based in um, Punta Gorda, Florida. Uh, a wonderful man. He was the best band leader I ever worked for. Uh, sadly, passed away a few years ago but um with his group we flew out all of all up and down the east coast playing and even flew out, i flew out with him to california and played out there and you know I, I, like i said i never did the bus touring thing i've had i've had a family and right. it, it makes it tough to do that right. um but but i we used to do fly out dates every weekend so i would go to work all week on Friday, I would have my stuff packed, leave from work, go to the airport, fly out to New England, go play in New England for the weekend, <laughs> and then fly home. And then the next weekend, I'd fly out to the Maryland area, would play over there, and it was that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. um, now, you mentioned earlier when you were talking about all your Beatle appearances, as it were, that you play bass. So do you play anything else or you just play bass when you're playing like John or George or something like that? No, no, no. I, I play guitar. <laughs> I, 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 you know, it feels weird to say it like this, but I'm, I guess what they would call a multi-instrumentalist. Oh, okay. When I was in school, I started out on piano. When I was in school, I played clarinet up and through 12th grade. And in, when I got to 12th grade, I looked at the band director and I said, look, I'm done with clarinet. <laughs> because I wanted to play saxophone, but my dad had me play clarinet, because if you can play clarinet, you can play sax, but it doesn't really, it's not as easy to go the other way. 
So when I got to 12th grade, I said, look, I'm, I'm done. If, if I have to play clarinet, I'm done. I'm not in band anymore, you know. And they said, okay, okay, we'll put you on tuba. So I went from playing clarinet to playing tuba, and then I played the double bass in the, in the um, symphonic band. So, you know, I also play saxophone. My wife is a trumpet player. Um, and I'm not a great trumpet player, but man, when I pick it up, I look like, like, I look like I'm about ready to wail really good, but then it's just terrible. So, my daughter plays French horn, so I've been picking up French horn here and there, and it, there's a lot of instruments around the house. So no, when I did John, I was playing guitar. Oh, okay. When I did George, I was playing lead guitar. When I oh, played okay. Paul, I did bass right-handed, and then flip-flop to left-handed. And, um, yeah, yeah. Some so, piano. what do you consider yourself most proficient at? Of I'm a bass, I'm a bit, uh, I always say I'm a bass player by trade. Ah, got it. When, okay. If I get, if I get, I get hired on guitar for gigs too. I'm mm. a, I'm a competent guitar player. Mm. I'm not flashy. I'm not going to leave anybody's jaw dropping, but, you know, I can play, I can play the parts very well and I'm clever enough to get away with it. And I, and I play... My nephew, who's actually a really good guitar player, says I play, I play guitar like a keyboard player. I play inversions, and I play different than a guitar player would, would play guitar. I guess maybe because I see it as a mathematical thing. I guess. I don't know. Well, do you play more chords? Or, I mean, yeah. obviously you're not doing a flamenco type thing. Well, you know, a, a, a guitar player, a guitar player might, you know, play their chords like... Like, like that. But I might. I I don't do a lot of movement. I try not to move a okay. lot. All of my inversions are kind of around the same area. Okay. So is that because you're proficient on the bass, or it has nothing to do with it? Um, it's because when I look at the fretboard of the guitar, yeah, I look for those patterns, hmm. and 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 I know I know chords. And the notes pretty decent so when i look at a chord you know a guitar player might play the chord here and then move up here to play the next chord but i look and go okay well the notes for this chord are down here but you just have to move your fingers a little different <laughs> and you can you don't have to move around mm -hmm. so it's laziness is what it is <laughs> you know at the end of the day i try to think about well if i don't have to move my hand all the way up here if i could just keep it here and move these little fingers a few times then I can play all the right chords in different right. what they call inversions. But you could do it if you had to, right? If oh yeah, really yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Now, it's, um, um, it, I'm it's pretty. Just, pretty... Oh, it's a little deeper, and I, I, I try to, I, I try to be clever about it, you know, and and uh, it gives different sounds when you play it in different ways. I guess that's why I, I sound maybe a little bit different than some other guitar players, but it, I, yeah, I mean, I could just sh strum all the bar chords and stuff. It's right. And I, and I do on some songs. It just, you know, now, how does the bass differ? I mean, I know, but I mean, I see some people like say John Entwistle or even McCartney, you know, and they get pretty flashy on the bass. So they're almost like playing lead on a bass. So arguably, what is the best way to play a bass? Is it chords or, uh, 
fill in or you know what are you well, trying to do with the bass that's the it's, proper way not the mccartney way or the impulse way or anybody else well it depends on what you're going for it, it's so funny that you mentioned ant whistle and mccartney because that was kind of my inner struggle as a kid when i got into john Entwistle, I was really going that route. And Entwistle was a French horn player as well. He was a brass yeah. player. Mm -hmm. And ended up playing, normally guys like James Jamerson played with one finger when he played on right, his, right. you know, what you'd call your picking hand. Most bass players play with two, two, fing, uh, two fingers. Can you hear that? Yeah. yeah. So Whistle used three. So he did a lot of triplets. Yeah. So he he did three. That's a finger moving, and, yeah. <laughs> and he was more of a bass guitar player. His sound was bass guitar. And what what does that mean? So I like to sound like a like an upright bass player. Okay. Like, okay. You know, I want to I want to sound like the guy, you know, in the jazz club playing like that. Entwistle didn't. He had like distortion and flange on his sound, and he he played very bright. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like a guitar, but just lower. Yeah. Um, but you don't, you, I mean, you can play chords. Bass players can play. And McCartney used to do a lot of fifths, what yeah. they call yeah. fifths. So, you know, he'd play chords on songs that you wouldn't expect, like If I Fell. And um, on the bridge for I Want to Hold Your Hand, he plays open fifths. Mm -hmm. um, but McCartney had more of that upright bass player kind of he walked the bass a lot yeah mccartney yeah. did yeah. so he got a little bit more of that that double bass sound i mean he was using the violin bass which is kind of shaped like that and it had right. the hollow right. sound to it yeah yeah it just seemed like later on he got more like if you listen to uh the isolated track of something you know it's very melodic it's almost like its own tune you know in a certain respect once he heard pet sounds yeah. And I mean, he was already starting to experiment anyway, but once he heard pet sounds, he started seeing what the bass could do other than just playing the root note of the chord. Mm -hmm. And oh man, some of the stuff, the bass line on Lovely Rita is just pure magic. Right. And I think one of my favorites from him is uh, Another Day, mm -hmm. which was solo. Mm -hmm. But if you listen to just what the bass is doing on that, the way he skips around and plays so light and walks the bass, it's really good stuff. It really makes you realize <laughs> McCartney was just a really good bass player. He understood music, yeah. and he understood how to make the bass fit the song. What I didn't realize until years later was McCartney would, he would record all the instruments, and he'd record the bass last. And what that allowed him to do was instead of the bass having to anchor the song, which a lot of songs, the bass is kind of the anchor to what's going on. So you can't really play fanciful and light. You got to hold everything down. He recorded everything else first and then would play the bass on top of it. And it became the melodic instrument. Hmm. Okay. Did he do that just to kind of give Ringo the, the, the soul beat or whatever or was that well, just we wanted more to do <laughs> i think i think he was just being creative okay you know he was the bass player so it allowed him to be creative on his instrument on songs that you know he wrote 
rather than just have to play boom, 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 which he did in a lot of the early songs. Right, you know? right, right. Yeah. Now, you mentioned Pet Sounds. Um, I know Brian Wilson plays bass, but does he play bass throughout that album? I don't always look at instrumentation. I'm not well, knowledgeable most, about that as much as you. Most of Pet Sounds uh, was the Wrecking Crew. I figured, yeah. So yeah. that's why I was asking. So it, it wasn't, it wasn't, I don't even know if Brian did play bass on it. Somebody's going to, I'm sure somebody will listen to this and correct me on that. I'm not even sure that he did play bass. He might've just been producing more and, you know, kind of directing the other musicians on what to play while the rest of the Beach Boys were in the uh, sound room complaining that they weren't actually playing on their own album. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Yeah, that's one thing I don't know either. I did a recent episode with Dan Post on what you know from classic show too yeah. and we did a beach boys episode a couple of shows back or so and i didn't ask him anything about that but i am curious about that you may know this or may not but i mean when brian was composing a lot of those songs did he do demos where he was playing and to show everyone or did he just tell everyone in the wrecking crew what he wanted i think he wrote out the music for them okay. brian so brian was heavily influenced by the four freshmen right which was a vocal group from you know well before and when you hear the early stuff and the harmonies when you listen to four freshmen recordings you go holy mackerel it sounds just like the beach boys right. and and you know then you realize that that's what brian took it from but brian was a well-accomplished musician and arranger mm -hmm. so i think i think some of the stuff he did in in the studio was experimental but i think a lot of it was written out he probably gave those guys charts to follow yeah. and they you know he would give them the chord chart and then give them an idea of what he wanted and then they would i mean it's the wrecking crew those guys played right. on everything yeah you know? and I, I watched the documentary but even then unless i've forgotten what they said it just it seemed like they didn't have that much direction per se i mean they did but not in the way that I would think Brian Wilson would direct them, you know, if it was something else, like, say, Mamas and the Papas and Sonny and Cher, they probably just said, play, you know, it's like, here's the song, do it, you know. I, I'm, I'm sure Brian had things that he wanted to hear, you know, I think, what was it, Good Vibrations was recorded in, like, three or, three or five different studios or something, and they <laughs> right. had to put it all together, uh, you know, I'm sure that they would do a take and he would stop them and he would direct them as to, you know, what he wanted different. Yeah, and then yeah. they might do the take again. But those rec the, the guys in the record guys and ladies in the wrecking yeah. crew were very, very sharp. So no doubt that they probably gave him what he wanted in, in not, not too many takes. Yeah. Wasn't I speaking of ladies, wasn't it? What was her name? I don't remember her name, but wasn't she the bassist? Carol Kay. Carol Kay, yeah. I knew yeah, it was Kay she, something. <laughs> she, um, she was one of them. Yeah. She, she was one of the bass players, and, and the other one's name eludes me. She's also a fantastic guitar player. Right. Um, and she did a lot of the sessions on guitar, or sometimes I think they would do two basses and two different types of basses. I think sometimes they did electric bass and uh, double bass together uh, to get certain sounds they it was really they they had a lot of musicians and a lot of them playing kind of sometimes the same parts just to give it that stacked sound right yeah 
Now, switching back to you, when you learn bass and guitar and everything like that, you talked about learning clarinet and possibly sax and tuba and French horn and all that stuff in band. Did you learn everything else on your own or did you take lessons or combination? I took piano lessons for a short time, but the piano teachers wanted to go by the book and God bless them, they you should. And maybe I'd be a better musician had I paid more attention. But there were two things that, that got to me. I wanted to learn chords and comping. And I knew at an early age that that's what, comping is how you play behind a singer or a, or a you know, an, an instrumentalist playing a lead and how you play chords behind them to accompany them. I wanted to learn that. And, mm -hmm. and I would sit and I'd learned all my major chords and then I learned all my minor chords and I learned my inversions on my own, just on my own. Mm -hmm. But then I would go to, you know, I'd have to go play you know, do, 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 and all, all of this stuff in, in, in a piano lesson. Yeah. So I didn't, that lasted only a very short amount of time and I, I didn't care for it anymore. So I stopped, which broke my father's heart. Hi dad. I love you. <laughs> um, he's he'll, he'll check this out. So that was it for lessons. Really. I, I have, I try to let philosophies guide my the way I do things. Mm. So the, my philosophy about music is once you learn the 12 notes and the chords, mm -hmm. every instrument is just where do I put my fingers or where do I blow into, you know, but the music doesn't change. Mm. If I play the guitar or I play a bass or I play a piano, it's still going to be C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C. Yeah. You know, it's just, okay, now I put my finger here instead of here, yeah. or now I buzz my lips or now I blow and let the reed vibrate. I mean, there's just, those things are just subtleties, yeah. but the music is the same. So once, yeah. I guess it's like languages. Once I learned my first two, you know, after that, every time I picked up something new, it was just, okay, you know, how do I do this one now? Hmm. Interesting. I always ask people that because I did what your dad wanted you to do is I took piano for 10 years. Now, the upshot of that is I, I can only read music. I can't improvise. Um, and I can't play with anybody else. It's called comping. I, can't, I, I don't know how to do that. And I remember in high school, uh, there's a couple of pianists that could do that. And I would talk to them. I was like, how do you do that? And they didn't have any answers. It wasn't until years later, I was at a friend's house for like Thanksgiving or something, and this guy was playing the guitar or something, and then somebody handed him a mandolin. And he goes, hmm, I've never played one before. And then he just starts playing it. And I go, how do you do that? You know? And he goes, did you learn to read music, or did you, did you uh, do it by ear? Did you do it by sight or by ear? And I said, by sight. And I go, that's what. You have to unlearn everything you've learned. Great. The only thing good about me learning uh, 10 years of piano is I do know how to compose music, so I could write you a composition and say, here, here, this will be a successful song, play it if you can read music yourself, or um, I know everything about music history and theory and everything like that, so that's what I did get out of it. Uh, but yeah, I can't play the piano really for improvising very well, like, yeah, so... I still want to go back and take theory at yeah. the local college. Uh, it's so fascinating. Yeah. Once yeah. you, 
once you start getting into it and the Bach four part stuff, and I remember being, I, I started out as a music major in college and then, um, and then switched over to computer science. But <laughs> I, rem I remember being in theory class and the guys who were music majors all like dreading it. And I'm like, I was so nerdy about it. I'm like, this is awesome. How could you not like this? This is, this is what you're, you, you know, this is, this is everything. Yeah. You're learning about how it all works, how it all goes together. But, um, you know, if you, if you start to take jazz theory, mm -hmm. then you kind of, you learn, um, you start to learn some of the things, some of the ingredients you need to do that comping that I was talking about. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, but even like, even the old church music was written basically like a lead sheet, like a jazz lead sheet, you yeah. know, and you read the, you had the melody and it had the chords and the, you know, what was it? Three over three, five, three over five, whatever. And then, you know, you'd play the different inversions based on what was written. I mean, it's, it's really, that's really comping. That's, that's the earliest part of it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's cool stuff. I love it. I yeah. love it. Well, I mean, that was the reason why, I mean, looking back on it, I used to think, why did I spend 10 years? Because even at the ability of reading music and performing in recitals and things like that, I still was pretty mechanical in my own uh, Uh, still, some note came up. I'm sorry. I'll keep going. <laughs> so, still mechanical uh, in the way I was performing, and uh, at least in my own impression. Other people said you were great. You know, it's like okay, you know, it's like. But I guess everybody's more hyper critical about their own performing. Probably you're you're still that way to this day. Oh, I should have played like this, and I played like this, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, and the. Um... I have to say that when I started doing the Beatles shows, it got even more like that. Uh, I had gotten I, I had gotten away from that because I had gotten comfortable with the way I wanted to approach the bass. I I had a different when I was in my element. I had a different approach to bass than most people do. I was a gigantic and still I'm a gigantic student of Joey Spampanato from NRBQ. And uh, if you don't know who that is, if you've ever seen Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll, the movie about Chuck Berry, mm -hmm. he was the bass player in that. Mm -hmm. And um, he plays with a palm muting technique and he walks the bass. And you it, for me, like I listen to a lot of bass players and you can see what they're doing or you can hear, you know, the, the type of technique. But he plays like a bebop bass player. He plays... Mm -hmm rock and roll like a bebop bass player and if you listen to the early like chuck berry recordings you know it's all double bass and a lot of it is walking mm. and it was um oh gosh it was one of the old blues guys and you, you would know i forget I for, it'll come to me uh because i didn't know he was a bass player i always thought of him as a blues guitar player but he, he played bass on all the chuck's early stuff it'll come to me anyway <laughs> um so I had I had developed this sound, and the the cool thing, and, I, and I'm not too 
Mark, I'm not tooting my own, own, own horn here. Everybody has their thing. <laughs> I had a different sound than most bass players. And there were a few times where, like, I was on stage playing on a big stage. And then my, the group I was with would get done. I'd put my bass down and walk off stage. And I'd hear the next bass player coming up near the band and warming up. And I heard my sound. <laughs> and I said, somebody's trying to cop what I do. And when I looked, that's what they were doing. They were palm muting and they were playing with their thumb and they were trying to sound like a, an upright bass. Wow. Like, but I knew that before they weren't playing like that. Most bass players play with their fingers, you know, mm -hmm. or with a pick or something. And one, one guy, in fact, uh, after the show, when we were doing the, the hang after the show, he came up to me and he's like, I, I got to tell you, I was walking around the corner and I heard this bass player playing upright bass on stage and I walk and you're playing a Dan Electro bass. He's like, I love it. I love it. You know, it was just really neat. Um, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> you know, no, we're talking about bass again. Actually, yeah. the one bassist that really I was impressed with that I saw live was Jack Bruce. And the main reason is he had no frets on his bass. And it was a really, I don't know what length basses are supposed to be, but it seemed like his was like 30 feet long or something. And he could stretch all the way out there, you know, and he played it effortlessly. He's just all. Yeah, it all it becomes, do you, are you a typist? Yes. Do you look at your fingers when you type? Yeah. Same, same principle. Once you, you know, you play a fretless bass, and you get used to the positions and you know the positions already you know but you just your ear starts to hear where your hand should be and after a while it just becomes muscle memory mm -hmm. your hands know where to go you don't think about it right in fact if you're most performers and if they're being honest while you're playing you're thinking about you know geez when i get home i gotta take the garbage out tonight so we'll leave Charlie Decosa hanging there. Uh, what really happened is the recording got cut off, and so I had to restart everything. And it was such an awkward or unnatural transition, I figured, well, I'll just start over again for next episode. So uh, we'll hear more of Charlie Decosa's interview next time. In the meantime, I will fill out the rest of this show with a monkey's single countdown that I did with Michael A. Ventrella, my co-author on the Two Monkeys books. Hi, monkey fans. Mike Ventrella here and... Mark Arnold. How are you? We're going to count down the top 25 monkey songs that made the Billboard charts because there were only 25 songs, so that makes it easy. And uh, we'll start right off. Let's get off with number 25, Mark. Okay, number 25 is actually their last U.S. single billed to the Monkees before they broke up, and it is Oh My My, and that went to a high peak high of number 98. That was only on the charts for two uh, weeks, and it gets a grand total of five points on our little chart here. Number 24 is What Are We Going to Do? This is a single by by uh, Davy Jones before the Monkees. They were trying to push him as a, as a big star, of course, at the time. It didn't really sell that well. It got as high as number 93 for three weeks. Came out in August of 1965, pre-Monkees. I don't even have it. So. Yeah, it it's pretty obscure, uh, yes. Uh, then the next single we have is number 23. Uh, it's one of their reunion singles, and it's a pretty good track. It's Heart and Soul. And I had one on pink vinyl. It went to a peak high of number 89 for two weeks. 
Yeah, that was when they were trying to have a big rebound and come back. Uh, it didn't quite do as well as they had hoped, obviously. Um, I think Mark and I both agree there should have been a different song off that album that should have been the single, which you can read about in our books. Number 22 is Good Clean Fun. This uh, came out in September of 69. Uh, it got up to number 82 for five weeks. This was the first single that had uh, both monkeys on it. In other words, Mike wrote side one and Mickey wrote side two. Side two, Mommy and Daddy didn't make the charts at all. Good Clean Fun got up there a little bit. It has 36 points on our little chart, uh, but that's about the best it did. <laughs> Next on the list is number 21, and it is Someday Man, a Davy Jones single that was not on any album initially. And it uh, became the B-side later to listen to the band. They just flipped the sides. Um, it was number 81 for two weeks. And what does it say on here? It's uh, technically tied with Good Clean Fun, but it got higher on the charts. So. That's why we put it above. So technically 22 and 21 point-wise are, are tied. But since Someday Man got higher on the chart, we put it at number 21. Mm. Now we're up to number 20. Number 20 is Don't Do It by Mickey Dolenz. Don't Do It is a song that he recorded before the Monkees when he was uh, playing in a band uh, called The Missing Links, believe it or not. And it got up to number, when, when the Monkees became a hit, obviously they re-released it, hoping to, you know, cash in on it. But it's not that great of a song. It got up to number 75 for four weeks in March of 67. That's one of those songs, if you know the title. You know the lyrics. So. <laughs> yes. Anyway, uh, the next one is the one I just showed, which I guess I could show it uh, again. It's this one, but they flipped the titles. Listen to the band became the A side, and it only went to number sixty-three in eight-week chart listing. And even though it's considered one of the best Monkeys tracks, and they close virtually every show with it when you see them live. Yeah, this you know this came out after the show was off the, off the air, of course, and so it didn't quite sell as well as it should have. Because it's a very good song. <laughs> now we're up to number 18, which Mark and I both agree is our favorite monkey song ever. And it only got up to high at number 18. It's the Porpoise song from their movie Head. This uh, got up to number 62 for six weeks. In October of 68, the show had been off the air. The movie bombed. But this is a great song by uh, Carol King. And uh, we love it. <laughs> yep. And there's a short version and a long version if you'd care to seek those out. So <laughs> let me take a moment um, to talk about the points though before we get Oh to yeah, that. the points. Go um, ahead. Basically, here's what we did. We looked at the billboard charts, and if a song got to number one hundred, we gave it one point. If it got to number one, we gave it a hundred points. So that's when I'm talking about the points here. We go into details and you can see. Um, we'll talk about our book later, but all this is in our book, uh, the first monkey book, if you get a chance to read up and you care about these kind of things. So when you hear me say points, it's based on how long it stayed on the chart and how high it got obviously the more points it got. So let's turn to number 17. Okay, number 17 uh, was off their album Instant Replay, and a lot of people say it sounds like Last Train to Clarksville. I kind of beg to differ, but still, I, it's a pretty decent track. But it only got to number 56 because, again, the show was off the air, but it is Teardrop City, and there's actually for that. Teardrop City actually was recorded around the same time as Last Train to Clarksville. They didn't release it until after the Beatles, Beatles after the Monkees <laughs> had, um, had pretty much gone off the air, and so it didn't quite hit as well as it could have. Number 16 is It's Nice to Be With You. That's a song by Davy Jones, sings it. Um, it's on the B-side of D.W. Washburn. And I should mention, we've been talking about B-sides. Back in the 60s, Billboard cared more about airplay than it did about sales, really. So B-sides would get on, on the charts as well as the A-sides, which can be quite confusing for people, of course, because um, it's not based – 
anyway, we'll get on to it. It's nice to be with you. Got up to number 51, stayed there for seven weeks. Got 311 yeah. points. To piggyback on that, yeah, B-sides are charged separately until 1969 when uh, Beatles put out something and come together, and they kept going up the charts together, and they said, oh, screw it, let's just make it number one. Yes. <laughs> um, next one, number 15, is another B-side. The Girl I Knew Somewhere is the B-side to A Little Bit Me, A Little Bit You, and so it made it to number 39 on its own for five weeks. Yeah, so that was the first um, Michael Nesmith song to make the charts that he had written. Um, and it actually made the top 40, even though it was only there for like a very, very short time. So that was nice. Speaking of Michael Nesmith, number 14 is Tapioca Tundra, another Michael Nesmith written song. This one is the B-side of Valerie. Um, I bet it would have sold a lot better had he actually named it something that people could remember. Because you no know, one calls up and says, play that song. I don't, you know, Tapioca Tundra, whoever heard of that. But anyway, it got it to number <laughs> 34, uh, stayed there for six weeks. So that was uh, another Nesmith written tune. Mm -hmm. Well, we had uh, solo records from Davey, uh, excuse me, from uh, Michael and from Mickey at this point. That's what I meant to say. Oh, actually, and then, no, Davey, Michael, we haven't, we haven't. Oh, Davey that. had one before, too. Yeah, That's right. Yeah. I'm getting all confused. But uh, number 13 is instead of Davey before the monkeys, this is Davey after the monkeys. He had a hit with Rainy Jane. It went all the way to number 52 and was on the charts for nine weeks. Yeah, this was around 1971 when um, they were trying to make him into the next star instead of Mickey, and they gave him an album full of, you know, Partridge Family outtakes, basically. <laughs> now, now we get to Mike. Number 12 is one of Mike's uh, hits, Silver Moon. That got up to number 42. That was on one of his early albums back in 1970. It was the follow-up to Joanne, which we're going to get to sooner or later. It's a very good song, and it got up. To, it didn't quite make the top 40, but... It did pretty well and got 381 points, if you care about that kind of thing. And he, he does a pretty good version if you ever get Elephant Parts of video of that. So uh, next single is the first single officially released after the TV show was done. Uh, it has <laughs> differing opinions from people because <laughs> it's very different than their other song. It's D.W. Washburn. And there's a group shot. It's a nice picture sleeve for this. Um, went all the way to number 19, and I think that's just because of the momentum of the monkeys still allowing them to have hits. But it's not the greatest song. <laughs> no, I, I bet if the show was still on the air, it might have done better, you know. But 19 is a big letdown for a band that was constantly making the top one, two, or three before that. Number 10 is another B-side, probably one of their biggest B-sides, which is I'm Not Your Stepping Stone. Everyone knows that song. That came out in 66. It was the B-side of I'm a Believer, and that got all the way up to number 20 and stayed there for eight weeks. So it did pretty well. And it is a garage rock staple. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> another B-side is uh, number nine coming up. Uh, words. It's not the Bee Gees words. It's uh, <laughs> the or, or version by the monkeys. <laughs> and uh, this was the B-side to Pleasant Valley Sunday. It was their highest charting B-side. Actually made it to number 11. Almost cracked the top 10 on its own. Uh, it went up. It was on the charts for nine weeks. Number eight is uh, Michael Nesmith's biggest hit, which was Joanne. Uh, after they split up, you know, and he went off and made his own album. This came off of his first album, and it got a lot of airplay, and he got up to number 21. Didn't quite make the 20s, um, but that's a pretty good sign. You know, it actually did better than a DW. No, yeah, it did better than DW Washburn in the long term. It got right. <laughs> it stayed on the charts longer. Didn't quite make it as high as DW Washburn, but it stayed on the charts for a longer period of time, and therefore it put, comes in at number eight on our list. And uh, now we're going to get to, when we get to the top seven, you're going to see, you know, we're going to start getting into much, much higher, the bigger hits, as you might guess. Let's talk a bit about our books, though, because we did mention that earlier. Um, 
we have two books about the monkeys. Um, this most of the information in this video comes from our first book, which is a long title, uh, "Looking for the Good Times," and we go into every single monkey song and we describe it. And then there's a list in the back with all the Billboard charts, and there's all kind of stuff in there. Mark, you want to say anything else about that particular book? Well, yeah, we cover all the albums up through but not including the Christmas album because our book was released to that. So maybe there'll be an update but right now. Don't let that deter you. Um, we do talk about the Christmas album in our second book, which is mainly about the solo years. It's called Headquarters uh, Chronicle of the Monkeys Solo Years. And uh, that takes us all the way up to the present day, practically uh, with the Mickey and Davey, excuse me, Mickey and Michael Turo. Sorry. <laughs> and uh you know, and then I guess we're going to continue on with our list, uh, but I'll say we can get the books. You can get them through Bear Manor Media. You can get them through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anywhere online. Uh, you can even get them directly through us if you uh, send us an email and drop us a line. So, mm -hmm. All right, we're up to number seven. That's you. Number, number seven. This was their big reunion single. They did it like a reunion single in 1976 called... Christmas is my time of the year, but it didn't do anything. It was a fan club release. But this is a big, big, that was then, this is now. It's a brand new 1986 recording with Mickey Dolenz and Peter Torker, the Monkees. And it went all the way to number 20 and was on for 14 weeks. It was a big hit at the time. I wish it was even bigger, but hey, at least I got it back on the charts. That's right. This was when there was a big, huge monkey reunion on uh... – Nickelodeon and everything, and they were suddenly they were their albums were selling again and everything. So this was a way to capitalize in on that. Now we're getting up to the top six songs that were all done during the TV series, which of course helps sell it. You know, when you've got a half an hour commercial every week, it's easy to sell a lot of albums. But these are good songs that deserve yeah. to get up to the hit. Number six is Valerie. Valerie came out in March of '68, right near the end of the TV series. It got up to number three and stayed there for ten weeks. We have a, it gets 806 points on our chart. It's a very good, quick little uh, voice and heart song that uh, did pretty well. Although, honestly, it was an earlier song that they revamped. In other words, it's a song. If you watch the TV show, you'll see it in the first series. But here they re-recorded it, added some horns, and made it a lot better, in my opinion. And even that, they have, like, multiple versions. There's a fade-out version, which I believe that single is. And then there's one that just cuts off, you know, right. a hard drop cut. Um, next one on the list is number five. It is, again, like Porpoise Song, one of my favorites. And probably Porpoise Song in this one, yeah. uh, Volley for Top Spot, in my opinion. Um, it is Pleasant Valley Sunday. Yet another good Goffin King tune, as is Portrait, uh, Porpoise Song. It was number three, amazingly. It didn't go to number one. Uh, for uh, It was on the charts for 10 weeks. Number four, we're getting to uh, a song that Davey sang that uh, Don Kirshner's last effort before he was absolutely completely fired, and it's called A Little Bit Me, A Little Bit You, another Neil Diamond song trying to follow up on the success of the previous Neil Diamond song, I'm a Believer. Um, it's, a, it's a very good song. It only got up to number two, though, which was a little bit disappointing after the big hit of I'm a Believer, which came right before it. Um, and uh, it was stayed on the charts for 10 weeks, and, and our point-wise gives it 878 points. Number three, I'm surprised this actually didn't go up higher. I thought this would be number one, but I get, you know, they had a momentum and everything like that. But it's their very first chart hit, and I have it in black and white and color. Last Train to Clarksville. I don't know if this is because people had black and white sets and color sets and they gave them a choice, <laughs> but anyway. Um, it was number 
one for 15 weeks. Well, not in a row, but it was on the charts for 15 weeks. Yes. Yeah, it that'd was be number one for 15 feat. weeks. Yeah. On the charts for 15. yeah, that'd be amazing. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that was a pretty big hit. Actually, that would have been number two. Uh, number two is actually Daydream Believer, as you might have guessed, because I, I think anyone watching this is a Monkeys fan already knows what number one is going to be. Um, <laughs> Daydream Believer, the reason Daydream Believer was number two instead of number three is because it fell off the charts and then came back again. The first time it was on the charts, it got up to number one, where it stayed for four weeks, which is quite impressive, but it stayed on the charts totally for 12 weeks, and then it fell off the charts. And then in 86, after that, after uh, um, after the big reunion with when they put out uh, – their songs right they re-released it remixed yeah. it slightly and sent it out and it got up to the chart but only got up to number 79 for a couple of weeks so when you <laughs> add those two together that puts us at number two um with 12 68 points which which is just slightly ahead of last year in the clarkson which is 1252 so yeah they're very close but daydream believer is a hit you know when, when everyone thinks of the monkeys that's what they think of they think of i'm a believer and daydream believer mostly the believer songs and of course, we're up to number one, which everyone already probably has guessed from the very beginning. It, it, it's those, one of these cereal box records. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it is. I'm a believer. And that went to number one and in, was incredible number one for incredible seven weeks. Can I say incredible more? <laughs> yes, that is um, quite amazing for any song. Uh, very unusual for a song to stay up that long. I don't think mm-hmm. I, I don't think the Beatles did it until uh, Hey Jude probably. You know? Yeah, and that was after this. So. <laughs> and that was after this, right? And it stayed on the charts for 15 weeks. It has a points of 1373, so you can see it's high above both Last Train and Daydream Believer in terms mm-hmm. of our little chart. But as expected, I'm a believer is number one. That's the one song that people think about, you know. And then Mickey always introduces by saying, "I sang this before Shrek." Um, but that's our that's our list. That's our 25 list. We wanted to go through it pretty quickly, so we didn't hold you up too long i hope you enjoyed it and once more you can get our books uh, there will be a link at the end of this video to tell you about that and uh that's all i have to say mark anything from you no have a good time bye collect the monkeys <laughs> thank you for listening and thank you charles decosa and michael a ventrella for being my special guests remember you can always watch the video version of this episode on youtube episode number 133 will be coming soon If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Danny Salazzi of the characters and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2021, Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you, and good night.